Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Tuesday, January 26th. Today on the podcast, we'll be joined by National Post writer Tom Blackwell to talk about why the Liberals booted an MP from their caucus. And we'll talk to the Toronto Zoo. They're looking for your help feeding the animals. But first, what do we need to know about the new COVID-19 variants, not just the UK variants? And the big question is, are our masks still good enough after we're getting news that uh, Fauci under the U.S. says cloth masks, not enough now? should be wearing surgical masks. Welcome to the program, Assistant Professor and Canadian Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. It's been a while. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Let's start off talking about the UK variant because we just learned that there are 34 cases now in Ontario. And just to put that in perspective, last Thursday, the number was 14. What should people understand about the threat that this new variant poses? Well, you know, I think we have to look at this from from a practical side, you know, and, and also appreciate this is what viruses do. And unfortunately, they, they you know, adapt and, and evolve over time and and mutate and, and change. And what we're seeing right now, uh, you know, some some have theorized that basically the virus is is adapting to being in, in humans because it, it hasn't done that before prior to uh, the end of 2019. So, you know, what, what we need to understand is that, you know, there, there's increased transmissibility with this uh, variant. That has been, I think, all but confirmed uh, through through every uh, epidemiological analysis that's been done. And what it means is that it's, it spreads uh, much easier than what uh, the prior variant did. We don't, or the prior circulating strain did. We, we don't perfectly understand why. Um, but I think Do we know how quickly it spreads then? Like if you were to well, give us, an, for instance, if you were in the uh, vicinity of someone who's COVID positive with the, the dominant strain that we have right now here that we've been dealing with for the last almost year, and this strain now, do we know how they would compare? Well, well, what we understand is that it looks like the transmissibility is about 50% higher, which basically means it, it essentially is able to spread out uh, to, to 50% more people during during the course of infection. What we don't understand is how that looks from one infected individual to the people around them. Does that you know does that look like it's actually you know leading to more people getting infected, or is it just a more efficient infection? Uh, you know, does does the lock basically fit into uh, into the keyhole better with mm. with this virus? And I think we're you know the unfortunate reality is that we have to figure this out in the lab, and that always takes us you know, a little bit of time. So we're, we're going to be behind the eight ball on that a little bit. Um, but what we understand is that our infection prevention control measures uh, are, are still absolutely pertinent to, to us being able to combat against this variant. I heard that this, it, this strain now they're finding, it's, it's not just more contagious, but it could also cause more severe illness in some people as well. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, so we, we heard some data coming out from uh, the UK on Friday. And, you know, I'm fortunate that one of the authors on, uh, on that study um, Dr. Mooj Sevak, I, I know fairly well and, and have worked with her in the past. Um, you know, they looked across three different data modeling studies, and, and what they found was that they do see that with this variant, there there does appear to be a, a higher risk of uh, severe disease or, or fatal disease. What we don't understand yet is how that looks when a person gets infected. Does that mean that they have more, you know, kind of more, you know, severe clinical symptoms, or do we just see an, an increase in the number of fatalities? And, and I think, you know, again, that's, those are kind of the nuances that it takes us a little while to, to really tease apart. All right. I want to uh, turn our attention to masks, because if we're dealing with a more contagious strain here, yeah. we're hearing that uh, European countries are basically telling people, uh, if you're going to be indoors, you're going to have to wear a surgical mask. I just want to play a clip from... Um, 
Dr. David Williams. It's clip number one, Dave, if you're going to play this, on medical masks for everyone. We haven't yet had our science group recommend going to surgical masking for the general public uh, in general, uh, just because sometimes um, we ask those are for people <clears throat> uh, we're looking at um, one or healthcare people already who have to work in close proximity to patients, so you can't do the social distancing. We're looking at long-term care and retirement home staff, as well as looking at the essential visitors who may have to be in close proximity. So we're looking at those who, for essential reasons, cannot maintain the distancing, and those ones already we recommended that they have proper masking and potentially some facial shields, etc. So what I'm hearing there, because, you know, my job is to question and to pick things apart so that I can get real answers here, is he's going back to almost a similar um, mindset that Dr. Tam was in at the very beginning of this. And and basically what I'm hearing is if you cannot use the surgical masks, leave them for uh, the people that are in frontline care situations. I think they don't want all the rest of us hoarding masks in order to try and take care of ourselves is what I'm reading between the lines there. Now, uh, Dr. Tam, of course, was, you know, went a step too far telling people masks are unnecessary at the beginning. And now we know that 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 was horrible news. But what's the prevailing consensus on masks among experts? Like I'm right now wearing a I'm making my own cotton masks. I've got uh, quilting fabric on both cotton quilts, quilting fabric on for two sides. The inside is polypropylene. Yeah, I, I think that we're still, you know, the, the basic recommendation is, you know, certainly it's adapting right now. I think the, the triple layer masks certainly, uh, you know, are, are kind of the prevailing method for for the majority of the public. Now, again, that that may change as we learn more about these variants. I think certainly that the case can be made for people that that can't, um, you know, uh, you know, basically keep social, uh, keep distancing and physical distancing, uh, you know, if they're in enclosed settings and they have to be uh, amongst other people, that you can make the argument certainly that they need uh, or potentially would benefit from, from double masks. But I think we also have to kind of take an appreciation that, you know, when we're thinking about all this idea, really the basic tenets of infection prevention control are that you do the right things right. So, you know, if if we have somebody that's considering going to double masks, but they're not using a single mask properly, then, you know, you look at that and say, well, is that really going to be a benefit if you actually were doing the right things right? Um, that would actually be the greatest benefit. So I think, you know, again, we're, we're adapting uh, as we get more information. We're only a few weeks into understanding what B117 is doing and certainly what the two new variants are doing. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, stay tuned, but do absolutely unequivocally do the right things right. Uh, right now as far as what the recommendations are. Okay. When you say B117, uh, that's the UK variant. And you also brought up two other variants. They, what is that? The South African variant and the Brazilian variant? Yes. Yeah. So there's B1351 that emerged in uh, in South Africa and then P1 that uh, that first emerged or was identified in, in Brazil. And we're, we're getting more information. Certainly 1351 and P1 have a little bit of, of I don't want to say increased concern, but we have some additional uh, questions in regards to immune evasion and what else that those variants are doing. Um, but again, we're... Okay, we're you just brought up a new that. word that people are like, what, immune evasion? I'm <laughs> guessing that this is the fact that vaccines might not work on it? Well, the vaccines, so we, we have some information that came out yesterday that looks like the vaccines still recognize both of those variants. It was more about people in regards to their antibodies, that some antibodies may not recognize those variants as efficiently as uh, what other antibodies do. Um, but right now, it seems at least that the vaccines, certainly the Pfizer vaccine, looks like it still holds. 
on, on those variants. It doesn't mean that others won't emerge over time, but what it tells us is that the vaccines actually are really good in that they recognize um, you know, more than, than just that kind of one specific region on the virus that, that has changed. Okay, you also mentioned, uh, you know, double masking. You, you don't know if you basically, I'm going to paraphrase here because it was a while back. Uh, you don't know if, if we need to go to that yet, if people are, you know, properly wearing their masks. Can you just go over what proper mask wearing looks like? <laughs> yes, pro- proper mask wearing, you know, to, to make it simple. Um, it, listen, first of all, it's got to cover your nose and, and your mouth. I mean, I think unequivocally, we, we have to get people away from that mindset that you can have your masks pulled down over your nose. And as long as you're covering your mouth, you're OK. You're not. Um, the nose and the mouth are, are two you know, kind of major in, entry mechanisms for the virus. So we want to see it over top of both areas. We, we also want to ensure that basically that wire that is on the one uh, edge of the mask, that that basically forms a nice fit over top of the bridge of the nose and that you have that mask on tight. So you're reducing the ability on the side of your face to have basically the, the mask flapping and a lot of, you know, kind of additional area for you if you sneeze or you cough mm-hmm. uh, or you speak loudly for anything to come out from from the sides of that. And really, that's what, it, you know, it's about that. It's about ensuring that you're washing your mask consistently. You know, you want to be washing it, you know, at least every 24 hours, if not more. And okay. certainly if you're, and if you're taking it off, make sure that you put it into a, a sealed container. Okay, what if you just quarantine it? Like for, you know, no, I mean, honestly, yeah, if you've no, got a I bunch agree. of different masks and you quarantine it, you say, okay, I've worn this mask out, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it on my side porch, which is enclosed. Uh, for like, I don't know, five days. It's, so it's certainly a great question, right? And I think the data from the lab so far that we've seen suggests that over a course of a few days, that likely the virus is no longer viable. But of course, you know, when we look at different environmental conditions, what is, you know, say, you know, it happening in Saskatoon is going to be different than what's happening in Toronto or what's happening on uh, on the Far East Coast, just based on temperature and, and environmental impact. So I, I think, again, we want to make sure that, you know, if you want to make sure that everything is disinfected, wash it and use use uh, detergent. It's, it, mm-hmm. it is unequivocally going to work. All right. Good to know. I want to go through a couple of things here very quickly. Uh, There's some question on people, if people should be worried about the Canada Post outbreak. 350 people sent home after at least 120 people on the same shift tested positive for COVID-19. Can you address if any any risks that could be um, passed through the post office depot onto people? Is that fomite transfer anything we should be worried about? No, I think what we're seeing in the pandemic is that fomites are not driving uh, a lot of transmission events. Certainly, it's in the back of our minds, but we're thinking about that more in terms of very close and in quick proximity. So people that are getting mail that, that's delivered to them, by the time you're touching that mail, the likelihood is, is going to be really, really minimal. And, and if you're concerned, wash your hands you know, mm-hmm. before you touch your face. Okay. Johnson & Johnson's reporting data on stage three trials will come out early next week. One dose uh, is all you need, and it doesn't require cold storage. How hopeful should we be about this candidate? Man, I, I'm, I am so hopeful on this, and more so for the fact of looking at underserved and low- and middle-income countries. Um, we, we need to get uh, you know the rest of the world vaccinated, not just kind of the 10% that are in high-income regions. So to me, th- this could be a game-changer for us being able to go global with, with vaccinations. All right, Dr. Kinderchuk, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yesterday, I was telling you how the Toronto Zoo has launched the second phase of its Zoo Food for Life campaign. And they are hoping that you will uh, look into your better nature 
as someone that shares the planet with these life forms and help support them, help feed them, basically, because it's an expensive endeavor. Uh, we welcome to the program Toronto Zoo CEO Dolph DeYoung. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Dolph, can you talk about the importance of the Toronto Zoo when it comes to not only education, uh, but also conservation efforts? Yeah, your zoo's mission is connecting people, animals, and conservation science to fight extinction. And you don't have to look far. Um, you look at the roots of this pandemic, and it kind of connects us to some of the challenges in our relationship with nature. Um, you know, those, those high densities of animals that shouldn't necessarily have been together, the degradation of habitats. And I think all of us, when we look at the past year, how much we've missed being able to get outside with our friends, the importance of nature and healthy ecosystems for our mental health. Um, so those are all things that are core to our value system and how we operate at our zoo. And, you know, we look forward to a day when we can get guests back and they can enjoy our 10 kilometers of trails and the trip around the world without getting on an airplane. Uh, but until then, uh, we're appealing for their support because historically revenues from things like parking would be used to offset uh, the cost to feed these incredible animals. Yeah. And you haven't uh, had parking since the first lockdown last March. So how have you been funding it right now, feeding the animals? Well, you know, our team has been phenomenal. We were we were closed for a period. We operated our first drive through for a few months to get people out safely. Uh, then we were open through the summer at a limited capacity to, again, flatten the curve, as we've all heard about, and then ended up back in a drive through until we closed on Christmas Day. So we saw about 50% of our usual attendance last year. Um, there's no world where we'd celebrate that except for a COVID one, uh, but our team was, was really agile, getting as many people in as we could. Um, and now we're looking at 2021 and, and really a simple message, closed but still caring and new year, but same big appetites that we need to look after. Is there ever a question of when you're looking at the dollars and cents here, of the animals that you have to feed, which I imagine are quite a few, maybe you can get specific on how many animals you're looking to feed. Uh, if, if you have to kind of eventually come to a place, like is there a contingency, contingency plan in place uh, when it comes to restriction of food? You know what, um, we talked about this at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we have two sacred duties to look after our team and look after our animals no matter what. And this community has been phenomenal, uh, raising uh, three quarters of a million dollars last year uh, for this campaign. And uh, we've already seen great support uh, at the start of this year's campaign. And what we really look forward to is getting those doors back open, hosting guests again, um, and like everyone else, uh, doing our part to keep people safe, but get that engine, that economic engine rolling again so we can keep doing this critical work. So you basically, you want to make this pandemic um, not so obvious to the animals. I mean, obviously, they're, they're aware that they're not having people look at them as much, uh, that there's not activity, but you don't want them to feel that in the food supply. You know what? Our animals, uh, other than some of them who really do miss our guests, I'm thinking of our you know, our spotted hyenas and our polar bears that really seem to notice the guests being gone. Um, you know, they they have seen no change in their level of care. You know, you think of this time of year, this for us is a critical time, for instance, with polar bears, where we're feeding them up in the winter. Uh, they usually be putting on a lot of mass, feeding on seals, building that bulk, the opposite of our, say, black bears. Uh, so that hasn't changed, nor has our commitment to endangered species breeding, things like Blanding's turtles, black-footed ferrets, uh, Vancouver Island marmots, you know, we can't take a year off 
when it comes to the recovery of these species on our planet. A lot of them are just holding on. They have a very narrow foothold. So mm -hmm. our breeding and release programs, um, we've continued to prioritize them and make sure we can provide that. How many animals do you have to feed at the Toronto Zoo? Whew, our team, our team, you know, you're talking 23,000 pounds of food a week, uh, 400 plus diets a day, mixing it up. Uh, they have different needs uh, and all have to be customized in different amounts. And of course, uh, just like you and I, we're always watching the scale. One of our key health measures, making sure um, their weights are where they should be. They're not putting on too much. They're not losing it. Uh, so it's an incredible team of, of science-based experts uh, making sure their needs are met and making sure they're doing as well as possible considering the closure. So you're feeding a family of very picky kids. How specific do the diets have to get? And can you kind of substitute anything? You know what, that's, that's one of our challenges in our team. You know, last year, it was actually a, a, around this time, maybe a few weeks earlier, where we started seeing uh, the suggestion that this, this virus uh, was going to be a huge threat and literally stocked up months of food to make sure we'd be able to provide even the pickiest eaters with what they need. Uh, so our team really is, is vigilant about stocking up. And then when you, when you imagine it, picture this huge restaurant kitchen. Uh, with a mix of scales and, and, and cutting utensils and bins where all those diets are being prepared, measured out, put into individual containers, labeled for those individual animals before they're distributed the next morning. So uh, it's an incredible production and uh, we look forward to sharing it with people again soon. You know what? I, I actually would love to get into that kitchen when this is all done. I, I would love to come in and, and see how that's... Uh, that's all prepared. I don't know if that's possible, but it's that sounds fascinating to me because I love a uh, food, and I think it, it just would be interesting to watch something of that size happen in real time. Um, is there a challenge with supply chains getting specialized foods? Because I've noticed our foods at the grocery store have increased. What have you seen here when it comes to feeding your pets, your pets, your 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 um, residents? Let's say at the zoo. Certainly not, certainly not pets. Um, no. um, we, we've had to be really careful about supply chains. Um, you know, we usually have a few options, uh, but when you're looking at a mix of things from mealworms to kibble to hay, uh, yeah, we've had to be really, really vigilant about keeping those chains open, um, having backups in place. And what we have noticed is, you know, during the pandemic, we've seen an increase in some cases, 10, 20% on certain products. Uh, so again, just another uh, really challenging financial pressure and I can't say enough about our gratitude towards whether it's restaurant partners, uh, folks like Second Harvest, uh, who you know have been really key in saying, hey, we can't use this, uh, are you interested? So whether it's receiving literally crates of watermelons uh, or other produce that uh, can be great enrichment items as well as supplementing the diet. So um, you know, our community has been phenomenal about reaching out to us since we've gone live with this campaign. Okay, so you're open to that. Yeah, we're, you know, you know, the key thing is that scale, um, you know, preparing those diets uh, is a challenge. But uh, when folks when they have a mass of things, please drop us an email, um, you can you can reach us through our website. Uh, and our, our nutrition team is really responsive about being in touch. And uh, if we can, we certainly will use that uh, to the benefit of our animals. And again, uh, part of our bigger piece, you know, all of us know the uh, importance of, of protecting food and minimizing food waste. And if it's safe to do so, uh, yeah, we'll proceed down that road. 
I can't believe I called them pets. However, you did mention kibble in the food supply. So there's got to be one or two in there that are, they get special treatment. Um, let's talk about uh, your website, TorontoZoo.com. Uh, it's the Zoo Food for Life campaign. Is there a goal you're trying to reach? Have, have it, what, What's the situation here? So it costs us around $100,000 a month to feed our animals. Uh, you know, we do uh, look forward to be open again soon. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to be able to raise enough to cover a few months uh, until we can get to that spring season. Hopefully, uh, hopefully by March, we'll be in a scenario where we can host people again. But of course, we're going to defer to our public health experts. And um, hopefully, once we get to that point, we can host you again too, soon. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd love to have you out in the kitchen. You can see us from uh, like I said, counting out mealworms to yeah. uh, cutting up lettuce and apples, to making the gels um, where we can add vitamins and other other supplements to make sure everybody has everything they need. I I wonder, you know, you brought up spring and I, I thought to myself, everybody loves going to the, the zoo at springtime because the babies are out. Do, do you have uh, more of a challenge feeding uh, pregnant animals? Like do you have to up their uh, food quotient on a daily basis when they're pregnant? Yeah, you know, one of the key things we're doing at that point is not only monitoring their weight, but monitoring their hormones. Uh, The team here, you know, we essentially have um, reproductive experts who will be tracking to make sure their nutrient needs are met. And we can do that through passive samples or or, uh, if we need to, we we take blood and voluntary blood draws. And again, make sure all their needs are met. So all those animals get the best start to their life possible. That that drive-through program, it was introduced, um, as you mentioned, in the fall and then it had to shut down. Have you been communicating with any level of government about the importance of getting that program up and running again? Because it it seems relatively safe here in the grand scheme of things. You know what? We we can't say enough about the great support we've received from both, uh, you know, from city and provincial officials when we've reached out. Uh, Right now, actually, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be snowing today. Uh, It's cold. Uh, But once we get to the spring, we will be reaching out again if we're not in a scenario um, where we're in a a reopen announcement. Um, Because, yeah, we we can socially distance. People can be safe in their cars. And that balance we all have to face, of course, uh, staying home, making sure we're not vectors uh, for the virus. But our mental health demands us to get outside a little, get some exercise, stretch our legs. And and if we can't do that, getting into a vehicle is a great way to socially distance. You can Mm -hmm. get scanned in. Uh, from a distance, and we we will look at offering that again um, if we're not in a scenario where we can't have walk-in traffic. Listen, it's a great uh, mental health excursion as well. The Toronto Zoo. When I look back at you know field trips when I was younger or things that we did with the the parents when we had uh, visitors in from out of town, the Toronto Zoo always uh, you know it gets number one position in my mind. It's a it's a great place to get out and uh, experience uh, you know what the planet has to offer with regard to uh, other beings that are sharing it with us. And uh, I think uh, you deserve the support of everybody that wants to uh, keep animals and uh, help with their conservation efforts. Um, And it's torontozoo.com if they want to get involved and help feed the animals, right? Uh, torontozoo.ca. .ca, okay. uh, Put it in your your search engine and uh, I I think you'll be there. Excellent. TorontoZoo.ca. Thank you very much, Dolph. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All my best to the animals and the staff. Stay safe. Thank you very much. I want to touch on a story uh, that broke yesterday with the help of National Post reporter Tom Blackwell. Welcome to the show, Tom. Good to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Ramesh Sangha, MP for Brampton Center, has been given the boot from the Liberal caucus after making baseless and dangerous accusations against a number of his caucus colleagues. This is according to Chief Government Whip Mark Holland. When Global News pressed Holland's office for details about the context of the accusations, uh, no information was given by them, none than, other than what I just said. So can you fill us in on what is the backstory that you learned about the accusations and why he was uh, given the boot? Yeah, sure. And, and the, the funny thing is, I was actually uh, working on a story about what, what seems to be the uh, the cause of this action by by the uh, Liberal Caucus be- before they made the announcement. Uh, so uh, it, it's interesting that, that it came so so quickly yesterday. But basically, yeah, Mr. Sangin, who's like a first term uh, backbench MP uh, from uh, Brampton, um, uh, did an interview with. Uh, a Punjabi language uh, TV uh, uh, station uh, a few days ago, uh, in which he it was kind of a, a, a slightly odd interview, sort of a bit rambling, but he made some fairly inflammatory comments that appeared to be directed to to um, uh, Navdeep Bains, who who just uh, resigned from cabinet, so somewhat unexpectedly. And at one point, he said uh, he, he suggested that uh, Mr. Bains was. Uh, you know, admitted that he was an extremist and he was a Khalistani. And Khalistani refers to Khalistan, which is sort of the, for some uh, uh, people of Sikh descent, sort of the dreamed of uh, Sikh homeland in India that would be sort of a, become an independent country. And, and followers of that cause are called Khalistanis. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's it's a controversial Movement, I guess, because in the past there there was terrorism associated with it. Um, anyway, so uh, basically, this is a liberal MP accusing another liberal MP, uh, recently a senior cabinet minister of of being sort of a, a political uh, ex- extremist. Um, so that, I mean, that that appears to be the reason why he was uh, kicked out of caucus. Is he uh, saying that suggesting that Minister Navdeep Bains is resigning because of that? Well, it, it's it's unclear from, and you know, I'm and uh, I'm basing this on a, a translation of his comments. So I mean, it's it's unclear if he's if he if he is saying that. I mean, he was asked in this interview about what what he thought about the resignation, and he said, you know, he, he was surprised, he was shocked by it. He, he didn't seem to quite make sense to him, given you know, uh, Nadie Baines was is you know a relatively young man and and. Uh, you know, successful political career, et cetera, why, why would he be quitting now? And then he sort of went on, you know, kind of uh, uh, this sort of rambling discourse where he repeatedly, he said, uh, suggested that Mr. Means was an extremist. Um, uh, whether he's sort of suggesting that's why he resigned is, is unclear. And, and, you know, I should say that uh, Nadie Baines has never said, I'm an extremist or I'm a, I'm a Khalistani. This is this guy's uh, sort of supposition. Right. And the government has uh, the chief government whip released a statement. He said, as we've made clear time and time again, we'll not we will not tolerate conspiracy theories or dangerous and unfounded rhetoric about the parliamentarians or other Canadians. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for many Canadians to experience suspicions because of their background. And we all know where this can lead and that the Liberal caucus continues to stand firm against racism and intolerance. Now, when Global News asked Holland's office for more details on the context of the accusations, they came back with no further information. So I guess my question is, don't the constituents um, 
of Brampton Center deserve to know the story of why uh, Sanga was given the boot? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, one would think that the, the government would be, uh, or the, the chief whip would be a little bit more forthcoming. I mean, it does seem to be uh, clearly tied to this interview he did, but uh, but the liberals are not saying, saying that uh, expressly. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, uh, sure, they, I think they should they, they should reveal more. And, and it's interesting, the, the, the statement that the chief whip put out, um, that sort of talked about conspiracy theories and and racism and, and intolerance and, and certainly you know that statement that you know politicians of uh, you know uh, racialized backgrounds are you know tend to be more uh, targeted for these kind of accusations. I think that's a, that's a very much a fair comment. But it, the unusual thing in this case is that is that the accusations were made by uh, another politician of Sikh background and and you know it seemed to be more of a of a political statement he was making or a statement on 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 sort of political stance uh, of, of Mr. Baines rather than a than a, a racist uh, statement so that that's kind of an unusual aspect of this too do these accusations play into uh international um storylines that are going on right now and, and relations? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's international and, and, and kind of domestic politics as well. I mean, internationally, it's, you know, it's, it's a big issue in terms of Canada's relations with India, which is, uh, you know, maybe more important than, than you might think because India is a big sort of emerging economy and Canada would like to have good relations and, and, Trade relations with India, but the Indian government, uh, who's, which is very much uh, opposed to the sort of Sikh separatist movement, feels that this government is, has been too sympathetic towards the supporters of it, the, the so-called Khalistanis, um, and, and this has continually come up as a, a sort of a point of contention between the, the two governments. Uh, so, yeah, definitely, it's. Um, uh, it, it, it is an, an international issue in that sense, um, and I think that's what Mr. Sanger's sort of concern is that he feels that the government has sort of needlessly undermined relations with India. I mean, it's also a domestic political issue because uh, you know there's a number of, of ridings that have historically been swing ridings that are mm-hmm. have large Sikh populations, and uh, you know different parties have, have tried to sort of reach out to those communities and, and sometimes that's meant being sort of uh, tolerant I guess of this um, Sikh separatist movement. I really appreciate you providing some uh, perspective here on this story that really we didn't get a lot of details from the Liberals about so thank you no. so much for digging into it Tom I appreciate your time. Okay thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into the program a pleasure having you along if you want to join us we broadcast live three hours every day from nine till noon Monday through Friday on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.